Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shade. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah, so who are we talking about today, Matt? Today, we venture into the heart of mystery, where the ancient whispers of the Appalachian Mountains reveal tales untold. Deep within the shadowed valleys and towering peaks, something otherworldly stirs. Join us as we unravel the enigma with the Appalachian Intelligence Podcast hosts Justin, Lance, and Ryan, who dance on the edge of reality and cause the boundary between the known and the unknown to fade away. They join me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to step into the misty embrace of the Appalachian Mountains, where the line between folklore and reality blurs. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Appalachian Intelligence. Here in Appalachia, like especially in arts, the area of central Appalachia, mammals and papaws have been doing stuff to seeds for generations to make sure they yield better the next year, right? And it's very similar to what we're seeing take place now in labs and through scientific research to help increase the yield rate of, of seeds. Mammal and papaw have been doing that with corn and beans here, dipping it, soaking it in certain solutions that have been electrified essentially, or soaking it in solutions that has the ability to 
conduct maybe electricity better to enhance essentially the fertility rate of these seeds. Like this has been something that's been taking place in our neck of the woods. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and with me today are two-thirds of an incredible podcast that you should be subscribed to if you're not already. Uh, They go by Appalachian Intelligence or Appalachian Intelligence if you're a Yankee like me. Uh, I'm kind of hip to it. I've been talking to these guys on and off here and there, and I think we're doing a lot of similar things, so I'm excited to get into this conversation, share a little bit of what Tara and I have been looking into here in Connecticut and find out what the hell you guys have been up to. But without further ado, we've got Justin and Ryan here. Lance may be joining us anytime now, but Justin, Ryan, welcome to the show, brother. Brothers, how's it doing? How you been? Thanks, sir. Doing great. How about yourself? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm trying to Roll something up over here. But while I do that, tell the folks who may be new and haven't heard your previous interview with me or maybe haven't heard you on Tinfoil Hat, tell them a little bit about yourselves. Introduce yourselves. Yeah, man. Well, first off, it's a pleasure to be back here with you, Mark, and with your My Family Thinks I'm Crazy audience. It's good to to be back with all of y'all. We had a blast the first time around. Well, we've talked a couple times at this point, you know, on our show, on your show, back and forth. It's We have a great conversation every single time. It's always a blast. But we are Appalachian Intelligence Podcast. We're just a, a group of knuckleheads that live in far southwest Virginia in the center of Appalachian, Appalachian Mountains. And we started a podcast talking about the weird, you know, the paranormal, cryptids, UFOs, conspiracy, altered history. You know, a lot of the the things that you hear Mark and the guests that come on this show and, and speak about. We started interviewing people and doing our research into different topics and all of these different things. And, you know, just as fate would have it, we started stumbling upon our own little mini personal adventures and you know, for the last a little over a year now, we've just been kind of gaining information and, and getting boots on the ground when we can and just trying to figure out what's going on in this weird world around us, especially right here in central Appalachia, you know, which is one of the oldest mountain ranges in the entire world. And something that we'll get into a little bit later on a specific river that cuts through central Appalachia that is the oldest river in North America. So 
We're going to get into some of that, but you guys can check us out. You can follow us anywhere. You listen to Mark. We're on all the major podcast platforms. You can follow us on all of our socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord, YouTube. You know, Well, not so much YouTube anymore. We've kind of strayed away from YouTube. But you can follow us. I mean, you can go to the old Google machine, type in Appalachian Intelligence, and our sweet, sultry southern voices and beautiful faces will pop up wherever you want to find us. So, yeah, just come hang out with us. Be part of the community. Check us out. Right on. And that is Justin speaking, the one with the golden smooth radio voice and and we got the more raspy but i think more punchy ryan down here on the bottom of the screen for the audio listeners you should be able to tell the difference pretty easily between the two but ryan how's everything going with you brother we heard a bit from justin there oh it's going great man just getting settled back in i ventured off for a while to south carolina and now i'm back in virginia for good so okay just fate had other plans. Yeah, in a similar turn of events, I have found a new living situation myself. And I think last time we talked, I joked that like, oh, yeah, Connecticut's kind of in the northern part of the Appalachian Mountains. And I'm actually moving right into that part, the little sliver of Appalachian Mountains that comes through Connecticut. I'm moving up there so i won't be quite in the mountains i'm not like taking a you know off-road vehicle up my driveway or anything like that but but it is a turn of a different turn of uh, events for me so i'm excited to be up there and feel the energies and it's one of the only places in connecticut where there have been historically sasquatch sightings there not many. I mean, there oh, might sweet. might be some down near Rhode Island because I have heard of Rhode Island Sasquatch sightings. But as far as Connecticut goes, they're all pretty much isolated in that one corner, which is where I'm going. But yeah, let's let's get into it. I mean, I would maybe kind of start the conversation, I guess, by saying recently one thing that I found. I haven't tried it yet, but I'm learning about how to create and then implement these dowsing rods because I want to use dowsing rods to maybe find some of these magnetic anomalies. And what I've been reading about is a lot of these strange locations have magnetic anomalies associated with them. So I'm wondering if you guys have come across anything like that in your research. Have you brought any compasses along with you and noticed anything weird with the compasses or anything like that? Well, we haven't noticed anything weird with compasses, but that's kind of how, you know, we talked a lot about the Swift Silver Mine and our journey and adventure into to trying to locate this lost Swift Silver Mine. And our source, our contact where this information was coming from, the guy that, that literally told him, okay, this is where it's at on the map, that's how he did it. He doused on top of a map. And that's how he made it the first initial, okay, I know where it's at. I've seen it. I've, I've laid hands on it way back in the 80s. So I tried to, I took some sourwood the other day and went back toward our rock and decided that I was going to become one with nature and try to use the sourwood limbs as dowsing rods and that didn't really work for me. <laughs> Nothing really happened except I was walking around holding two sticks, looking like an idiot. <laughs> what kind of wood but was no, it? No, man, it's it was sour wood. Is that is there any 
like lore associated with that particular type of wood? Well, around here, it's one of those types of wood that glow that grows close to a river, okay. and you know anything like sassafras, sourwood, sycamore, you know something like that is is kind of a, a river growing tree. You can take those, and it's you know it says that the water being so close to moving water, the lore around here anyway, you know our Appalachian upbringing, you know a lot of the old folks around here works you know, exclaim wonders by sourwood and sassafras and all that. They say you can take the limbs and use them to douse and, and find right. water. You know, we call them water witches that can douse and find the water. Cool well, little story. My grandma actually cut a sourwood limb. She said I was young and sickly, and she cut a sourwood limb off to my height and then placed it over the threshold at her house to where I would have to walk under it every day. And then when I outgrew that sourwood limb, she said, now see, look, you're all better. You're you're big, strong, healthy. You're good to go. Damn. <laughs> so there's a lot of lore around it. Yeah, geez, I wish my grandmother put a sour wood over my door frame. I might have done better on the wrestling team. But that's interesting because <laughs> I've heard of the water witching thing, but I my mind went to witch hazel. So I was like, maybe witch hazel would be a good dowsing. I think I read that possibly somewhere. But while you were explaining that, Lance. The missing third of the Appalachian Intelligence Podcast has joined us. Sorry we started without you. We were just so excited to get going. But Lance, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Mark. It's so awesome to be here. I apologize for my tardiness, but... No, it's fine. This is just, this is just an AI thing. I'm usually the guy that shows up late. So if I showed up on time, if I was here on time, ready to record, the boys would know something was wrong because that just never, ever happens. But I'm tickled to death. Good to see you, Mark. Um, tickled to death to be here. Right, right. I fully understand, and I understand being superstitious right now. We don't want to mess anything up. Just go with the flow. Friday the 13th is coming up this month, so just be careful, gentlemen. But yeah, we were talking about some witchy things, as you may have gathered. Uh, it's really weird, you know, when it comes to dowsing, there's all sorts of, you know, debunkers who go and try to debunk it, but... Over and over again, it seems to prove results. I mean, you have evidence in the form of oil companies hiring these people to go and find, you know, reserves of oil in the ground. So, you know, it doesn't just work for finding treasure. It could work for all sorts of different resources. Water, of course, is the most uh, precious. But I'm wondering, you know, given what we've looked into here in Connecticut and the magnetic anomalies that are associated with a lot of these ancient stone structures if there's something about dowsing that might click into that and when you're in these locations people talk about you know their dowsing rods spinning around and showing that like okay there's obviously a lot of something going on energy or what have you but these more scientific types that wrote this book that i'm going to reference in a moment they went there with like, you know, devices that could measure voltage and all sorts of other devices to measure like electricity in the environment. And uh, yeah, they found that when you, you know, are in the proximity of these sites, you're getting a high read reading on these voltmeters, right? So something electromagnetic is obviously going on and Eventually, you know, these authors make a, a pretty 
long way about case of saying that all of the megalithic structures around the world were agricultural devices used to basically boost the fertility of the seeds because they reached a point where their agriculture practices were basically not yielding what they had. They didn't understand fertilizer potentially is what these guys are thinking, but they understood that if they could ionize these seeds using the electric you know, capacity of certain structures that they could build, then that would boost the fertility and yield bigger crops. And there's like records of it in the soil. You know, they can see in the soil where, you know, at a certain point in history, there was more of a certain plant or less of a certain plant in the soil, right? So I wonder if this record in stone that we're kind of stumbling upon and I know this is it's a tangent in your guys quest because there's so much going on in that area that's just one feature of it and the same is true for New England but when it comes to the stone structures I wonder if it reveals maybe a more ancient Atlantean for risk of sounding like a kook civilization that existed here And, you know, we're kind of stumbling upon the remnants of it. And that explains why, for the most part, you know, people aren't really acknowledging all of these things because it falls under this really, I guess, out there explanation that maybe the gap is so wide that the academics and the scientist types, they don't want to think, oh, yeah, there was a civilization in the past that was more advanced than us because things just don't work like that. Everything goes from being simple to complex. That's just like this paradigm that everyone's thinking in. But what if the case is that, you know, we've been here for aeons And we've endured all these different cataclysms, but because stone is kind of like this, you know, incredibly durable thing, it's just around so much longer than we could keep record of the people that that built it, right? I mean, that seems to me when I look at the megalith stuff is everything points to the timeline being pushed back further and further. And there's some stories we can get into today on the show that I have loosely prepared, I'll do my best, about people who like channeled all this weird stuff in the early 1900s and eighteen late 1800s about Atlantis and how, you know, there were cell phones and flying cars and, you know, things that to us are like, oh yeah, that, you know, if somebody came up with that 20 years ago, it's reasonable. But in the late 1800s to imagine a cell phone and then promote that idea like, oh yeah, in the past we had these like things that, the way they described it, obviously they didn't use the term cell phone, but they described like a a piece of glass that showed a form of your friend and they could talk to you through it. And that that it's like, Mm. huh, that sounds a lot like a damn iPhone, right? I mean, so (laughs) that's kind of the direction I'm straying uh, along lately is like, what if you know, and I'm not insensitive to the genocide that, that took place here with the Native Americans, but what if, you know, it's insensitive to think they built it? Because a lot of what they're saying is, no, we didn't build it. The mounds were here before us. This stuff was here before us. Maybe they mimicked it after they, you know, saw certain examples and recreated certain structures. But it does seem like, yeah, there was this ancient civilization 
that was here a long time ago. So I know that's a massive, you know, million dollar kind of concept here, but that's the kind of stuff we like to get into. So what do you guys think of that? I mean, I'm sure you that idea, that concept has come across your research table this far in the game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think we see the evidence. There, There's really not a whole, you can't really argue the mainstream point anymore. There's just too much of these petroglyphs that nobody can really explain. You know, just like you were saying, the natives that are here with the mounds and them saying, well, no, we didn't build that. You know, there were a, a race of people that were here before, sometimes giants, they'll claim, or a, a fair-skinned people that were here that they built these mounds and, and did this and did that. You have, you know, all these accounts of people coming over and encountering lighter-skinned tribes that spoke a, a language that sounded a lot like Welsh. You know, you have all these ogum and just this different forms of ancient writing and, and characterization that's found all over these different rocks and petroglyphs. I mean, and going as far as the fact that you say, and Oh, well, I'm some kind of Atlantean race and being able to have this technology and all this and that. Well, I mean, we firmly believe on our show that Atlantis, if there was an Atlantis, which I think there's pretty strong evidence for would have been a pre-Diluvian race of people. It would have been a pre-Diluvian civilization. And we believe that pre-flood, you know, pre-Diluvian, that technology was probably more advanced than even where we are today. So it's not completely out of the realm to think, I mean, look at all these megaliths, just like you were talking about how these electromagnetic fields and, and how people can douse and do all these different things and where you have these different megaliths or these temple sites, you know, a Gobekli Tepe, you know, some of these ancient places that the more we dig and the more we research, we see, oh crap, well, this was built on top of another civilization and that was built on top of another civilization and that was built on top of another civilization. You know, this goes back 6, 10, 12, 15 20,000 years ago and you start seeing that all of these sites, a lot of them are, you know, aligned to the constellation. A lot of them are these really anomalistic fields to where, you know, EMF meters are going crazy and there's just so much energy there and used and, you know, toward the theory that you were talking about that they used with growing of the crops. I mean, a lot, it all makes a whole lot of sense. And we've came across the same kind of ways of thinking and research into what we're looking at because, you know, obviously we have a petroglyph in our backyard that we have no clue where it came from and it doesn't match any, any culture that we know of any civilization that we know of. It doesn't match precisely and specifically, but Again, just like those archaeologists at these ancient Turkish sites, the the deeper we dig, the more we start finding, and the farther it goes back. So now, yeah, man, I'm 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 on board. I love it, and I want to give Ryan and Lance a, a chance to chime in, but before they do. I do want to show you guys this book I found where it shows a great deal of images, 
pictures of different inscriptions on rocks throughout the East Coast. So maybe we can find something that matches up. I mean, I know you guys have looked into this, but this guy was doing this in the 80s. His name's Barry Fell, and his peers were like, dude, you're crazy. We don't like you. You know, your books are nonsense, you know. So he didn't really get a lot of respect from his fellow anthropologists, but... Yeah, unless you guys have seen this already, I'd love to I'd love to to show you guys some some of the images, but what do you think of that, Lance? Yeah, for sure, man. So, as Justin made the point like I've I got actively believe that pre-diluvian the race of man that was here or we call it Atlantean, I mean, however you want to describe it, right? But in, in my beliefs, like the pre-flood world, okay, either even if you believe in a, a worldwide flood, or if you are one of those who believe in localized a, a a variety of localized floods that change civilizations, and that every civilization points back to, like either one of those things, you believe. Whichever one is fine. Personally, I believe worldwide flood, right? That's just my worldview. But I also understand the people who believe localized flood that altered civilizations kind of everywhere because you see those in all the writings. Which one of those you, you kind of back doesn't really matter. But when you go to the point before those events that took place, right? So there were people here and there was stuff going on before all those things happened. Right. And I am actively like 100% believe that those, that civilization, those civilizations, the Atlantean civilization, whatever that may have been, was at a technology uh, level that's far greater and far exceeds anything we've even seen yet in our own human civilization. Okay. So if you go point post that flood to where we are right now, yeah, we have seen great leaps and bounds in technology. Absolutely, right? So just the fact that we're having this conversation via Zoom and it's in real time is 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 magic in its own right, and it shows a great uh, strides in technology that we have taken. But I don't think we've even really even gotten close to what technology was like beforehand, right? And then the people always argue, like, well, what if they had this type of technology around, like, where did it go? Why did we not see evidence of it, right? We have fossils from the animals that may have been before there or whatever. You can always find these civilizations that got covered up. Why do you not see any evidence of these civilizations or any evidence of this type of technology? Like, I think that there were planes flying around. I think there were cars flying around. I think spaceships were taken up out of here, right? I think that's something that was actually going on, right? And the argument always says, well, then, why do we not see evidence of that now? We see all the evidence of all these other things. Why do you not see that type of technology buried somewhere? Why has it not been dug up yet? Okay. And this is what I always say, Mark, and this may sound a little bit crazy, right? But this is what we do. I think just in the last 10 years, okay, in, in the last, just in the last 10 years, in the last decade of our lifespans, how much information has been completely digitized, Right. The, I see behind you, there are probably, what, 500 to 1,000 books, if not more than that, <laughs> right? Good I, I myself am a book lover. I have tons and tons of them stuck here. My, my wife, like, she goes crazy because I just I buy random books. That I, sometimes it's like I'll look at, I won't read, but I just want to have them, right? Because I think that the printed word, the printed, just anything, right? Books in print, physical copies of stuff are going away in a mass scale. Things are becoming more and more digitized. All right. Now, what's the next 10 years look like? 
less books, more digitization of those books stuck on servers, places, wherever it may be, in the cloud, where it may be. Well, that gives me a ex- great theory on where all that type of technology and information was gone before flood. Right. While it was a Diluvian racist, right? Because they had all this information. It was completely digitized. Maybe there was neural links. Maybe they had no need for books because they could just think back and forth, right? They could just have conversations without even having conversations. All these things are a possibility if you consider that technology was a whole lot greater than it was now, right? So just a touch of my worldview, like I think that Adam, God created Adam and Eve. I'm not going to get biblical or philosophical one. I'm just going to give you my just, just thoughts on this. And they were created perfect, right? And they were living a long time, according to, according to, according to what the Bible says. So you've got people who are living a whole lot longer than us. They were a whole lot smarter than us. And they were living in a much closer community than we are. So they were able to come up with all this stuff that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of yet, right? So when you see the stories of Atlantis and you think about what some of the I guess, stuff or technology or things they're able to do, and you also think that how fast have we evolved technology-wise in 15 years? Imagine what you could do over a thousand years and people are a lot smarter. Right. It makes sense to me. Then, all right, that's why they're able to do these things. And that's it's not out of the realm of possibility. If people who are dumb as we are can send a rocket to space or come up with Bluetooth or come up with whatever, like people back then were a whole lot smarter than us living a lot longer. They could definitely come up with things even a bit more so than, than what we have got right now. So that's why I think the technology and what we see and what people are considering what the and again, back to the Atlantean race of people, what they were could have possibly been able to do. And there's records, right, of people having, like you said, in 1800s, describing a, a glass sphere or whatever and being able to see your buddy on that, right? So that's things have been carried down now through generations because at some point pre all of this, people weren't just making this crap up, right? Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's a, a theory or an idea, it's based in some form of realm of reality. And to sit here and say that, no, that's not possible. There's no way they had that. We are at the peak right now and only going higher. Like that's, I think that's a little bit of a, a, a kind of an asinine thought process. And the possibilities are just endless, even for us today. It had to have been like that in times infinity, pre diluvian Well, on your I love what you said. You made several points that I want to respond to. First and foremost, our technology is certainly not great today. We lost Ryan halfway through, so I don't know. Hopefully, Ryan will come back, but we're back to our two-thirds here. But Different two-thirds. Yeah, but I agree, man. I think you're making some great points about that, and you know, I brought up a couple books here. So if you think your book hunger is bad, I, I can't help myself. I'm downloading books as I'm talking to you guys. I'll tell you after the recording how I'm doing that. But <laughs> but we, I found a book about, you know, Edgar Casey because he wrote about Atlantis. He wrote about, you know, well, not wrote. He had a person write what he was sort of dictating but you also talked about the Bible, and it's interesting how those two concepts, those two stories were contiguous and not different, right? In his perspective, Atlantis is sort of talked about in the Bible. It is, as you're putting it, this pre-Diluvian civilization. And yeah, I mean, based on what Edgar and a lot of these other channelers are saying, 
the Elanians were up to some pretty debaucherous and unholy stuff. So I understand the flood a little bit better after reading all this. And I think, you know, every Christian should, you know, give it a shot and just be open-minded to it because, you know, everybody from the president to Ford, Henry Ford, Nikola Tesla, and several other people, you know, of prominence in that era went to go see Edgar Sacy for readings and you know you'd go in there with a, a sore foot and he'd be like oh well that's because you you stubbed your toe on a time crystal in your past life in atlantis and you know you gotta f- fix that or whatever some crazy you know people would probably be baffled like what does that have to do with you know what i'm here for but you know it was really compelling stuff enough to the point where you know people obviously respected his abilities and i think what adds to his credibility is the fact that he didn't get rich off of this he didn't like you know charge people money and you know i think that's a that seems to be the story with a lot of these channelers that have interesting things to say sure there are scamsters everywhere and that's the first thing the skeptics point to so you have to wonder if the scamsters aren't actually like you know a part of the whole thing where they throw some scamsters out there to muddy the waters right but when it comes to this atlantis stuff i want to pull some stories out from this edgar sacy book i don't know if i'll be able to do that while we're talking here without making a big gap of silence so i'll just show you guys this other book that i had prepared so let me know when you can see this map here yep gotcha all right cool so while you guys are checking out the map i'm gonna fix the obs so that obs can see it and then the audience can see it as well all right, Dude, cool. just by glancing at this map already, we're we are already on the same page. <laughs> so, I just want to know. I mean, so you mentioned the oldest river. I know the oldest river is the Susquehanna, but then again, you know, there could be people who say one river is older than the other. I don't know how you exactly measure that sort of thing, but maybe you're you are talking about the Susquehanna River. But either way, I'm wondering, you know. You guys, do you see my mouse, my cursor? Yeah, we got you. Okay, so you guys are somewhere around here, right? Yeah, about where the Ian is at in Appalachian. Yeah. Yeah, right around this area. So, I mean, you guys are smack dab in the center of all this activity, you know, all this stuff. And this is just what people have found. So you could be, yeah, stumbling on something that fits within Barry's explanation for all this stuff. But hey, I mean, Barry, I don't know if he goes into the Atlantis stuff much. I, I haven't read his book through and through, but yeah, let me try to well, I could already take I could already take a couple of those symbols, like especially the Celtic Ogham, and place it over here about where the Ilm is in mountains. That would be around West Virginia area, South Central West Virginia. I'm actually, we have some really good friends that live up in that area that have been talking and looking into finding some Celtic Ogham or what's described to be Celtic Ogham and looks extremely similar. 
and some petroglyphs up there. So hmm. that's what I'm saying. Even though what on this map, what's been shown, that's what I was saying when you first pulled it up, like we're already on the same page, like hmm. the things that we're finding locally, we could go ahead and put a couple more of these symbols over on the map. Right. But yeah, right. man, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's everywhere. It, it's all over the place. Right. And this is a sort of, you know, rough estimate of the Mississippi River, I guess, now that I'm kind of looking at it. Now, I see there's like Egyptian hieroglyphs, but those are all mostly up here. Who knows? Maybe there could be more Egyptian hieroglyphs. But as we go further into the book, they give us some examples of what this script looks like. And here's one good example. Now, this is Iberian. Have you guys seen oh, anything yeah. that looks like this? No, I can't say that I have. So this, what we're looking at, is an Iberian inscription from North America and another one from Europe. The American inscription engraved on a stone tablet was found in 1838 at a depth of 60 feet in a large burial mound at Grave Creek, West Virginia, together with the skeleton and copper arm rings. It was at once recognized by Professor Raffin of Copenhagen as being Iberian, though that script had not at the time been deciphered. Recent studies show that the language of the tablet is Punic, a.k.a. Phoenician, written in the form of alphabet used in Spain during the first millennium B.C. So, yeah, these are the types of people that were traveling to the Americas back then, and maybe that's because they were part of this, you know, Atlantean sort of spillover where, you know, people obviously survived these cataclysms and Maybe people who remembered, you know, the wisdom of Atlantis, they just took to the sea and became these like seafaring cultures that the Greeks wrote about. And the Romans probably killed a ton of them. And, you know, I don't know much about the Phoenicians off the top of my head, but that's another of these topics where it's like, yeah, it does kind of strike me as odd that, you know, the Phoenicians... You know, they're from the Middle East, and when the colonists came, you know, the European colonists, what did they say about America? They were like, oh, this is, you know, straight out of the Bible. They start calling every town New Jerusalem or New Salem or, you know, all these different places out of the Bible, and it just makes you wonder, like, maybe there's more to that. But let's just kind of yeah. dive through this book here. So here's some Ogham. And they talk about how the Ogham was deciphered. But let's see if we could find some examples of artifacts that were found with Ogham on them. Well, here, I don't know if you can really see it. Probably not very well on my phone. Well, if... Nah, it's not showing up very well, is it? Do you have a uh, telegram or could you send that to me on Instagram and then maybe I could. Oh, okay. Now we're seeing it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That it's definitely looks a lot like what we we're seeing before. Copy there. So huh. that is a good friend of ours, Josh Robinson. He's actually a pastor up in 
the Logan County, Madisonville, Logan County, Boone County area of West Virginia. And he is looking in to a place like that. And, and actually in a couple of weeks, two, three weeks, we're supposed to leave, we're supposed to go camp directly across the property from this. There's a, they've got a huge project going on. It's called shadow Appalachia. A whole lot of stuff is involved in it and with it, but this has been kind of a recent deep dive that Josh Robinson has been doing and kind of sharing uh, with us in a group, you know, just, you know, seeing where the connections can be made, you know, seeing what we've found close by and how it all correlates and ties in to different places and different areas. But I know recently he's got so much literature on these sites and this Ogham and uh, different petroglyphs, you know, on up closer to Charleston, I think maybe in or around Charleston, you know, obviously you have a couple mounds there within Charleston, West Virginia, which is the, the state capital. But you also have a petroglyph of a couple natives or what appears to be natives with spears um, kind of plunged into this river serpent, which, you know, is a pretty well-known deity in that area, the water serpent. Mm. So, I mean, there's just a, there's a whole lot that this ties in and correlates with, you know, the things that we're looking at right now or contacts or, or friends or really a good close associates of ours, some of the things that they're diving into. So, I mean, it's really interesting to see where all these things show up, you know, where, mm. it, because as you're saying, you know, a lot of this stuff is showing up closer to your way up in new England, down through the Appalachian mountains. You know, we know down in Georgia, like with Fort hood and, and the whole folklore and legend of the moon eyed people, all the findings that have been found there, you know, the different petroglyphs and difference. I think maybe Ogan was found down there or, or some form of ancient writing. And then you have in, I think it's called Mount Hope, West Virginia, where if I'm not mistaken, I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago. I should have been more prepared and had it pulled up too. But they were talking about all these mounds being built like hundreds and hundreds of mounds in a linear fashion across, you know, all these acres of land. And when they started, you know, back in the day, they didn't think anything of these mounds. They just dozed right over top of them and built whatever they wanted to build. But they started finding artifacts that resembled Egyptian artifacts right well, there in Mount Hope. Well, and the, the strange thing about it is like people might see, okay, we got Celts, that's Ogham, Irish, right? We got Egyptians, we got Phoenicians. So there's all these cultures that seemingly aren't connected that actually turn out to be possibly, if anything, just through trade connected. Because as they point out in this book that we're looking at here, the Ogham alphabet is similar in some ways to the Iberian and the mm -hmm. same things have been noted with certain tribes in America where they have certain words that are now thought of as, you know, Native American that are very similar to words that were spoken in Ireland and the British Isles. But here's a, here's basically like a dissection of, I guess, an alphabet. I don't know if all the letters are considered maybe they didn't use all the letters that we're familiar with but hey maybe you guys could take this book and go and try to translate some of what you're finding there 
Yeah, for sure. Definitely. That's a great idea. Also, just throw this out there because I think he's been trying to decipher what's going on. You can put all this into chat GPT too. Hmm. And chat GPT will will translate it for you and send it back. So Oh yeah. Chat GPT. AI, it is what it is, but I mean no, it's used a big it for help. the right purposes. Yeah, it's a big help. Juan, I know my friend Juan, I maybe you guys have been on Juan's show before, but Juan from the one on one podcast, he's been using certain AI programs to help him translate like old alchemical texts from like French and Spanish languages. So, you know, obviously before all this technology was here, you would have had to spend like three or four years in school at least to learn all that, you know, and now he's pulling it off in in a week and doing these videos on things that people were writing down in French in the 1700s. I mean, it's pretty amazing. The same thing, you know, with with like a lot of what was written just 100 or 200 years ago in the 1800s here in English, like you could put it in chat GPT and it will help you make sense of it because... You know, whether that means we're dumber or smarter, I can't really tell. A lot of people like to say, oh, we've gotten dumber. I I mean, in some ways, we've gotten a hell of a lot smarter. But, you know, there's a big kind of context barrier when it comes to, like, reading some of these things from the 1800s and the 1700s. Like, it's hard to sift through, even though, you know, we speak English. You'd think we'd be able to figure this out. So to Lance's point earlier about, like, them digitizing things back in the ancient times, like, yeah, I mean, imagine how big the gap must have been back then where you have like certain groups of people that have this like psychic computer knowledge. And then there's basically barbarians moving around and like, just, you know, just doing their hunter gatherer thing. Right. So yeah, who knows? Maybe we're just a sort of byproduct of, uh, of these cataclysms. And and that's what we're stumbling upon is evidence of this ancient culture. Now, when it comes to up here in, in New England, all of these structures seem to be pointing towards the copper mines in the Great Lakes. And at least the Hammond Asset line in New England has some indications that it's pointing towards that. And you guys obviously know about mines. You're looking into the silver mine there. So is there any indications that this is an ancient mine? Forgive me if this is something we've already talked about. Well, no, I mean, it's great to review and go back over. That's the one thing, you know, we keep feeling like we keep trying to connect some of these things that we're finding to the mind. And by we, I say me, that's just the way my brain works. I I try to connect everything, you know, everything that comes about has to connect in some way, shape or form. But I think it's more along the lines of, of just with, the lost silver mine that we're looking for. I think it's just a totally separate thing from a lot of these. Now, do I believe the ancient people were, and maybe not ancient, who knows, maybe, but do I believe that they knew where these mines were and were mining this silver? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when Swift came over and caught wind of this and built an operation around, he had to learn it from somewhere. I mean, he was taken prisoner by the Shawnee who were mining it at the time. They had to learn it from somewhere. So, you know, it's one of those things that was passed down over and over. And you just had this well-to-do, swift English name 
uh, you know, former pirate, made a whole lot of acquaintances, and he was just a manipulative, really smooth-talking guy who had the resources and was able to recruit the people to come in and actually start operating this as an as a legit mine, you know, and making buttloads of money off of it. But as far as these ancient inscriptions or what I believe to be ancient inscriptions and stuff, I believe that more than anything, these were just, they were just messages left by, you know, the people of the time. I don't know that it really, you know, like up your way and, and things leading and pointing toward maybe the the copper mines and what's going on with the Great Lakes. We actually had a conversation with a guest previously about those copper mines, and I was trying to remember how that connected but for the life of me, I can't remember right now. It may have been something totally different. But who knows? I mean, maybe it does point. I mean, what was one of the the things back in that with me? It's my belief that humans at heart for all throughout human history, we've always had this adventurous, curious spirit. We've always wanted to we see the resources, we see what's there, we see the value in it, let's find it. I believe all throughout history we've been treasure hunters. I mean, that's just, we know that emperors and kings and and all through, you know, back through history, they all had these gigantic treasure rooms. They all had these thrones made of solid gold and ivory and all these gemstones. And, you know, we know that more treasure has probably been lost forever than is out there to be found. So, I mean, I would love to think that a lot of these things that we're stumbling up on point to the silver mine. But at the same time, I believe that's just a remnant of the people of the day saying, hey, let's make our mark. Let's put something down here for future generations, you know, just like we're doing right now with this podcast. Well, when we're dead and gone and we leave here, whoever is going to look back and say, well, man, these guys, you know, they kind of knew what they were. We figured this out and this, that they were way above or way before their time. Or they're going to say, these guys were nuts. They were so far off, but it's really cool that they were on this pursuit. You know, I think that's just, I think that's just part of being human is, being having an adventurous spirit and wanting to leave some kind of legacy, you know, and I know that was a really huge diatribe and tangent that circled all the way around your actual question, but that's just kind of where I am right now. I feel like these mysteries and these adventures that we are, if they connect and if they coincide, then great. We'll use that to our advantage. Mm-hmm. But there's a huge part of me that likes to see all of these things as just these little specific adventures, journeys, mysteries that now one thing that I do not so much pointed toward any kind of mine or treasure, but some of these things that have been transcribed and stuff, I love how they always point toward really similar things. Mm. Mm. And it's a, it's usually what would have been considered some form of deity or like we like to say on our show, old gods, old lowercase g gods that were either worshipped or revered or completely, you know, the, the people were terrified of 
but a lot of times that's what is transcribed in the petroglyphs, you know, the, the symbolic petroglyphs. And then that's a lot of times what's written about too. I know there's been some Celtic Ogham found that has referenced like Mary, the mother of Christ. Now I know that's not ancient, but like you're saying, these, all these places with all these biblical names, if we have Celtic Ogham coming over from, you know, who knows, you know, the first, second, third century, they're coming over. They're talking about, they're leaving like little extra biblical sources on the stone. Mm. So, I mean, it's really cool to look back and, and to, to see, you know, what's going on there. No doubt. Now, well, I'm in the exact opposite camp of what he just said. Tell me why. <laughs> so I think these things are here because I think we as humans or whoever put these things here had very specific purposes to put them there, right? I don't, and I, I'm not saying Justin's wrong, right? And this is one of the great debates we have a lot on our show. I think the instance are our, our, our petroglyphs that we've found, um, the other ones that are around the local area, the ones that the, the enormous amount of those that are scattered uh, north, south, east, and west on the Appalachian Mountains. I think they were put there not for the adventurer soul just to kind of make his legacy or put his mark there. I get that. I understand why that point he's coming from. But to me, and I think this probably stems greatly from the differences in Justin and I's personalities, right? So Justin's eyes full of wonder all the time, right? We'll take on any theory and think that it's the gospel called our truth and just run with it. And it'll just captivate his mind for three seconds before the next one comes along, right? That's kind of how his brain's always, I I can say that because I've known Justin for 20 years. I'm pretty much brothers. I'm a lot like that. (laughs) My personality is more of the opposite of that, right? If I'm going to do something that intentional, I'm going to intentionally do it. And there's going to be a very specific purpose why I do that for. So I think the petroglyphs that we find are stamps in time that these people were civilization or, or, or whatever it was that put it there, right? Had a very specific purpose. Why now what that purpose was for, like why that's there. I think that's left up for us to figure out, to theorize about that these South conversations about to dig more into, to try to find the history of these civilizations. All I think that's, that is part of our purpose of who we are in the point in time of history that we're at right now. Yeah. So Justin mentioned about, and this is again, this is what I would call Lanceyism, right? This is a little more of my theory on things. I think specifically to the Appalachian Mountains, the reason we see such a, a wide variety of different civilization petroglyphs or writings or all, all the things like, for instance, you show us on the map, right? I'm under the impression that those were very specific ritualistic carvings that were there specifically to idolize or worship or used in some type of uh, ceremonial thing they did to worship these old gods. Now, in our realm of the podcast that we talk about, Justin mentioned about these old gods, and that's kind of what we call these deities. Now, that could be like supernatural, literal old gods like fallen angels. It could also be really big, tall men that were just gigantic in stature 
and were just bigger than everybody else and became iconic king-like beings because they were just larger and stronger. And we all know, right, biggest person in the room kind of commands a lot more respect, right? That's just the way life is, okay? So I think, yes, definitely, Mark. So that's why I think that we see so many of these things because in our neck of the woods here in Appalachia, I think there was a lot of those types of civilization or people that moved in and out of the area that put a rubber stamp on the area and says, this is what we were worshiping. This is why we were worshiping it. And this is the petroglyph in time to show you why we were doing that. Mm. Now, so let's figure out everything else. That's my thinking on it, right? It's if I'm going to take the time to do something like that, because it would have taken some time. Then it has to be a, a great amount of motivation and intention and intent behind that. So I think they thought it was a big deal, right? Me raising my kids to me is a big deal right now, right? So I spent a ton of time investing myself into them so that when they're my age, they've got some values and some lessons that can help them further on. These people put these things here because they took great value in whatever they were worshiping or whatever they were doing to leave for future generations to also understand the great value they placed in those things. No doubt. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, something that I take a great joy and respect in is, yeah, trying to decipher this story. And I agree with you that there was probably a great deal of intention put into all of these things we find. But I I also, you know, think Justin has a point, too, that, you know, there are these sort of sort of quixotic and I don't know if that's the right word, but like serendipitous maybe moments in life that, you know, spontaneously crazy things can just happen, you know, and maybe it is something chalked up to a thing that you would read and think, oh, that could only be fiction. But on the point of, you know kind of meeting those two perspectives in the middle let's look at something that's completely etched in stone and i mean i I don't know what you guys think of this but (laughs) what are the odds that there's this dragon-like carving here in i think it says it's in peoria illinois i'll read the caption in a moment but yeah, very strange things going on with this with this picture here. Can you guys see what I'm talking about? Yeah. So yeah, that's actually shoot. What's the name of that bird? The people still claim to see. No, that's called the crap. Give me just a second. This is worth a quick Google. Oh man. Look to me, Mark, why he's looking it up like a really scary version. It's one of the three Gilligrogriffs. Say that again of the which one? It looks to me like a one of a really scary version of one of the three Billy Gilgriffs. <laughs> just in the first, like maybe just the face and the beard reminded me of, of a Billy Goat. It definitely Billy Goat does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, hey, maybe there's a deeper symbology to that it does have like antlers like a deer yeah, no, and i thought those look like deer antlers to me right that's that was another thing that looks like deer antlers yeah the piazza the piazza bird yes oh also i call the bird of that. the evil spirit or the bird that devours men is a fire-breathing winged creature or dragon featured in legends of the illini tribe yeah, yeah. 
Okay, yeah, okay. So I think this book actually talks about it. It doesn't say it right here on this page, but yeah, that definitely rings a bell. And this is in, uh, yeah, Peoria County, Illinois, probably along the uh, Mississippi River. But yes. Yeah, so, and located right there at the Cahokia Mounds. Right. You know, again, we're talking mounds being right there and then this began etched into into the stone so it, it, it's one of those things like it makes you think like are people just pulling it there, there's no way they're just pulling this from their imagination it's they can't be i mean this is something that they have had to seen or at least thought that they have seen or this was some kind of deity you know how many different cultures and civilizations and religions have these winged dragon-like entities that they worship, you know, all through South America, all through Asia, you know, they're everywhere. Well, so sorry if you hear my dog barking. No, that's He's all right. Crazy outside. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there an aspect to what you guys found that suggested there might've been like a, a libation pool or some sort of like spot where liquid would have been collected yeah yeah possibly i mean the way that our what we keep calling a petroglyph you know rock carving the way that it's actually the way that it's set up it looks like that it would be a place for liquid to kind of some form of liquid to kind of channel through that was one of the first experiments we ran on it like it was one of the first things we got and i was like hey well, because it's freaking Indiana Jones, this thing, and pour some water on it and see what happens. I remember you guys like told me about did. this. Yeah, you guys did tell me about this. And the reason I bring it up now is because in Woodstock, Vermont, where they have this uh, stone chamber aligned to the winter solstice, it's got like, you know, certain openings so that the sun comes through. It also has a altar dedicated to the sun god Bell, according to this researcher, Peter Jay Garfall. And then it also has this, what they describe as a libation bowl, which is just like basically an indent in this stone where water would have been collected and channeled into some somewhere else. And that got me thinking like, you know, maybe water. Yeah, sure. You can energize water, right? And drink it. Blood, if you want to take a more gruesome or sinister interpretation but also from what I was suggesting before, and I, Lance, you might not have been here for this. Maybe you were. I don't remember. But the aspect of these megaliths being used in agriculture, maybe these, you know, indents were used for grain and seeds. You know, they put a bunch of uh, their seeds there for an amount of time, magnetize it with this sort of uh, energy that scientists now have proven you can do it. They don't even need megaliths anymore. They just put it next to this, you know, induction generator. It just generates the electricity and, you know, I'm using dummy speak here. I don't know the actual term for it, but they charge these speed seeds and it boosts their fertility. So who knows, maybe the same thing was going on with these stone structures. And I know your the place you found was up high too. So that could even add to that in some ways. There's something else crazy too, Mark. So you mentioned now them being able now to put it in dummy speak, magnetize essentially, energize these seeds to increase their fertility rate. Here in Appalachia, like especially in our area of central Appalachia, 
memos and papa has been doing stuff to seeds for generations to make sure they yield better the next year right and it's very similar to what we're seeing take place now in labs and through scientific research to help increase the yield rate of, of seeds Memo and Papa have been doing that with corn and beans here, dipping it, soaking it in certain solutions that have been electrified essentially, or soaking it in solutions that has the ability to conduct maybe electricity better to enhance essentially the fertility rate of these seeds. Like this has been something that's been taking place in our neck of the woods. Like even now, like I, others in my garden, I do certain things with the seeds every year just so I can increase to help maybe grow, you know, bigger tomatoes or whatever the case may be, right? Which leads me to say back to where did my grandparents get that from and where did right. their grandparents get that from and where did, how did they, how did these hicks live in the mountains with completely isolated pretty much from civilization? How do they know to do this, right? right. Well, they more than likely has been passed down or met somebody who had, like you said, use these megaliths for these very same things many moons ago and just been passed down word of mouth through tradition right and it's it, it which leads us again to say things like yeah this stuff's been going on around here for a long time and that's why we find all this stuff in our areas because this has been here for you know generations and generations even far before even what we know is written human history is as well right Right. I got another example for you guys. This is out of Bradley County, Tennessee. Give me a moment. I'll share my screen. Is that near you guys? Bradley County? Does that ring a bell? It's not really near to us, but I, I believe I know what you're getting into with the wall. Well, this is some samples of a carving found on a rock. Maybe it comes from the wall you're thinking of. But at first glance, I'm like, is that a kangaroo? But now I'm seeing him like maybe it's a bird, but this is something I'm guessing this is, this was carved into the rock and they're, you know, doing like a representation of it. But that kind of looks like a weird figure or something. It yeah. does. It looks like a, like you said, at first glance, it looks like a, a wallaby or a kangaroo with like chicken feet or turkey feet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Little skinny legs on a big, like kangaroo body or i mean even just well, it's like, got like a rooster's or a, a turkey's beard <laughs> yeah it's oh, weird man maybe it is a turkey yeah huh that is interesting but and then there's this you know very strange script here that i don't see this is a different book than the one we were looking at before so they're not like particularly pointing out the language or anything but yeah that's very odd script there who knows where that comes from i what have those aren't ears those are eyes <laughs> yeah, and it's like a frog yeah i kind of yeah. see it as like a frog eyes now that you say oh, that yeah. yeah that's interesting <laughs> those are eyes no, that is that's definitely interesting especially those characters like well, and as know, we the, saw the first initially it looks like a b yeah right and then you have you a c a little you can long see i can see a c there for sure yeah, oh yeah, it's like it's weird. Like it, the first line looks like what we would consider, you know, maybe some early version of our alphabet. Mm -hmm. You know, the English alphabet. But then the second line down, you're like, what the heck is that? Right. I mean, where's that animal again? Yeah, it's one of the characters. Looks like the same kind of thing, maybe. Oh yeah, down there, right? Yeah. Huh. Very strange. 
Yeah, and that's the thing is like as we saw with that dragon type creature, that bird, the piazza bird, or maybe that wasn't the right word, but these sorts of things are recorded. You know, it's not just something that people recount from eyewitness experience, but we have evidence of strange beings being carved into stone to be preserved for thousands of years. This is a book called A Guide to Places of Mystery in the United States, Weird America by Jim Brandon. And I Mm. wanted to zoom over to your neck of the woods and maybe pull a few stories from where you guys are at. But we're going to have to jump from one state to another. So I was like, maybe I go down to Virginia first, and then we jump to West Virginia, and then we jump to Tennessee, because those are all down this is alphabetical so probably it's funny that you bring up a book you know the author being jim brandon because i'm going back through and rereading a book book right now by jim brandon the rebirth of pan hidden Uh, faces of the american earth spirit i have that too (laughs) yep yeah very weird stuff going on well and maybe you guys tell me like because i where should we look? Because I wanted to pull some, they're kind of short little brief summaries of weird things in each state. So check out something that I've really been diving into right now. And I don't know if this would be in, in any of these books, but it's a place in Virginia called Sinking Creek. Okay. And so we uh, got, we got Bedford County. We got, let me figure out exactly what county Sinking Creek is in. Clarksville. We got Meadows of Dan, Norfolk, Rockbridge County. Kind of separates the weird stuff by location, and then Salem. So those are the the our options for what Jim Brandon writes about. While you're figuring out where that is, I'll start reading the first one. So somewhere in. The hills near Roanoke, treasure hunters believe, lies one of the more ingeniously concealed stashes of gold in North America. The Beale ciphers, three coded letters containing nothing but strings of numbers, are believed to pinpoint the crypt, holding no less than three tons of gold and gems buried there sometime around 1821. Since this is a treasure guide with a difference not involving the usual spud do you want to buy a zillion dollar treasure map, from shade, shadowy characters in dubious bars of Florida or Arizona, it has attracted some incisive minds, including a number of professional cryptanalysts. One recent effort was the Beale Cipher Symposium held in the Univac Auditorium in Washington, D.C. in April of 1972. But even though crypto people that's funny this is the 70s and they're talking about crypto people that's totally different now (laughs) crypto people always assure us that there is no such thing as an uncrackable code and even though the most advanced computers have been called in to do the busy work the beale verdict thus far is still no luck huh 50 years later maybe we should look that up and see have you guys heard of the beale Uh, cipher am i reading old news to you guys no, this is not old That's news. I, this is the first time that I've heard of this. Yeah, fascinating. So the Beale cipher, uh, the ciphers were written a century and a half ago by one Thomas Jefferson Beale, 
One of the letters was supposedly decoded by using the Declaration of Independence as a key. 20 years after Beale mysteriously disappeared, the decoded chunk reads in part, I have deposited in the county of Bedford, about four miles from Buford's, an is, sorry, from Buford's in an excavation or vault six feet below the surface, the following articles. It goes on to describe a fortune that somehow came into the hands of Beale and 30 companions somewhere in the western states. So far, the declaration and a number of other literary items haven't worked with the remaining two letters. According to Carl Hammer, director of the computer sciences at Univac Corporation, two positive facts have been established. The remaining Beale ciphers are real messages, not hoaxes, and they are really a code of a kind similar to the already translated letter. Wow. Is that mm. those places ring any bells to you guys? Buford's? Does that sound like a known spot? Well, no, I don't know where Buford's is, but I know where <laughs> Bedford County is. Right, and right. It's got me wanting to grid search every square inch of Bedford County and <laughs> find these letters and put them in a chat GPT. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, let's look that up right now. Maybe somebody's already beat you to that and put the Beale cipher in chat GPT. Let's see. So I'm on Wikipedia now and it says, it doesn't say that they deciphered them. It's just, oh, hold on. Uh-oh. No. Yeah, I guess they did decipher them. That's so them. interesting. Huh. I think they did decipher them. So maybe the maybe back in the 70s they had only gotten to the first one but the second two say something about let's see I've deposited okay and then he says huh oh maybe not maybe they haven't deciphered it I don't yeah it's not clear but they figured out how much treasure is potentially there. That's all they seem to mention on the on the Wikipedia here. And Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, is allegedly, he is a part of it somehow. His, he used the, the event or something in one of his stories and maybe has like a hint at the mystery and to the code. Or to the cipher. Oh, man, this is, I'm starting to feel like Dan Brown and or Robert Langdon, a Dan Brown novel. Well, and that's I'm going to break this code. And that's the thing. It's like, as Lance pointed out earlier, like there's all this information out there in these books, man. Like, you know, Jim Brandon, he's not exactly a well-known author, you know. People, I think the Hellier folks kind of dug up his book, or maybe it was the Penny Royal folks started talking about his book and, you know, I'm sure more people know about it now, but yeah, this is interesting. So Rockbridge County, Norfolk, Meadows of Dan, are any of those places a little closer to you guys? Because I want to... Salem is close. I think I saw one with Salem. Is there one Salem there? Yeah, Salem. Yeah, Salem. That's, Salem. that's fairly close. And it's, it's okay. not too far. So here we sa- it says, West of Roanoke on US 11460, a farm field near here was an area where mysterious disappearances once occurred. In April of 1885, Isaac Martin, a young man living nearby, had gone into the fields to work and vanished. Reportedly, there were other disappearances in the vicinity. 
And that's all it says. And then they talk about Williamsburg. Well, that's not surprising by any means. I mean, there's a lot I'm digging really deep into a quite a few missing people really close to us and a couple stories that are just absolutely just bonkers, man. I mean, they're crazy. But Salem there too, that's the beginning. It's a little, a little west east of that. It's kind of the beginning of Shenandoah Way and Shenandoah Valley, which has a ton of caverns and caves. Oh, I mean, tons and, and tons and tons of caverns and caves. Like you, even I mean, I've lived in, lived, lived in the great state of Virginia my entire life and didn't realize that the beginning of the Shenandoah Valley had the magnitude of cave system and cavern system that it had. So it doesn't surprise me at all that in the greater Salem area, some of these, or I guess, people disappearing. Some of them hobgoblins hopping up out of the caves and taking them down in there. Well, carrying them that away. area has has the most Bigfoot sightings of anywhere else in the state of Virginia. Jeez. In that area, that oh. getting into the Shenandoah Valley area. And again, you know, you can look at all these, you can look at these Bigfoot maps of where sightings occur, and then you can look at missing people maps, and then you can look at the cavern systems of the U.S. maps, and you can superimpose all of those onto each other and they're pretty much I mean it's scary how it's also largely where we think that potentially some of these old gods were being released from which is gives reason for their local people to set up petroglyphs and and that's the thing man on stones let people know what's going on that's the thing it's like when you add this dimension of an ancient civilization that had capacities of technological advancements that are beyond our understanding the paranormal cryptid stuff starts to maybe fold in a little bit more neatly like i i haven't released this episode yet but i spoke to a woman who channels and she's out there in tennessee right now she's from australia and I asked her, I said, because she mentioned she went to the mounds. I said, well, did you channel, you know, the mound builders? Like, did you try to communicate with them using your psychic abilities? And she said, yep, I did. And she said that the mounds were once used as portals. And at a certain point in time, the earth was more, you know, open to visitors, so to speak, and you know, travelers, right? And these mounds were in correspondence with one another, basically portals. And she was saying that it wouldn't work for third dimensional people because we're just too dense. It, it just wouldn't work. But maybe in the past, you know, they were 4D or they had just maybe a different vibration. The earth was a different energy or something. And these portals worked. But a lot of times with these cryptid sightings, you know, people report, oh, it just kind of faded out of view or, you know, I shot at it and the bullet bounced right off. I mean, maybe that explains why these beings are able to go in and out or use certain areas, and travel through and frequent certain areas that have these gateways, right? I mean, and she basically said that each structure would have been aligned to a star constellation and that would be where you know, you would be going to. So, and when you look at that, I mean, every megalith seems to be aligned to some sort of celestial formation. So 
who knows? Maybe this was just like, you know, another step on on the galactic highway back in the ancient times and galactic grist area. Yeah, now we're like a, a walled <laughs> off truck stop with like some stragglers <laughs> living inside. <laughs> well, I mean, just think about it though. Where we are today, you know, a lot of people don't even believe. They think that that it's you know complete nonsense that we are made up of a of any form of spirit, you know, that we're a spiritual being of any sort. You know, a lot of people think, you know, we're just completely physical. We're here just like that tree's here, just like that rock's here, which I would argue also has some form of, of spirit to it in, in some sense. But back, I, I, I firmly believe that the farther we go in our process or our evolution as people we get further and further away from that spiritual oneness with our creator with the universe with the earth around us you know and just look around i mean look at all the electronics that we use look at all the radio waves and you know wi-fi all the different waves all the different elect electrical whatever that's going on all around the world I mean, what if that has some kind of, what if that's some kind of reason that some of these things just don't work anymore, you know, or we're, we're not able to comprehend some of these different things. You know, I firmly believe that a lot of these cryptids, a lot of these, you know, even getting into the UFO thing and a lot of the things that we see on a day-to-day basis that we would call paranormal or supernatural I believe there's some kind of interdimensional thing going on. Mm-hmm. I believe that they are slipping in and out of some other kind of realm, some other kind of, you know, some other kind of dimension, some like a multiverse, you know, whatever you want to call it. I believe that's a reason that a lot of this woo kind of stuff happens and comes along with these things. Now, do I believe that all of these sightings and all of these things are that? No, I don't. Not all of them, because you hear a whole lot of flesh and blood sightings and a whole lot of things that sound like something that's standing there just like me and you are here today. Right. But if you have an ancient people that were an extremely spiritual people that, number one, could have been legitimately communicating with some kind of old God, you know, a fallen angel, some kind of deity that can give them this information. You know, we know these things are completely spiritual beings, so they're operating in a different realm completely. So maybe they could have gave that kind of information and it passed down and passed down. Well, here are, this is the rites that you have to commit. This is the ceremony and the ritual that you have to practice and do. Here's the sacrifice that I have to have. And when that happens, you build this big, great thing and it will open up and you can travel here and allow me to travel there. And who knows what what could have happened? But I have to believe that these megalithic structures, these mounds, the pyramids, all of these things, with them being lined up to these constellations, with them being on these what people would call ley lines, Mm -hmm. you know, these energy lines with them being in these places that if you look at a map from NASA, 
that shows these extremely huge anomalistic EMF features. Like I have to believe that there's something more going on there. I mean, there has to be some form of bridge between these different dimensions or these different realities or these different realms or whatever you want to call it. Well, I believe that what we see here day to day is, is just, it's not all there is. No doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't put it better, but as you're saying that I found something in the same book, you guys know where Sneedville, Tennessee is. Yep. Okay. So this book, and it also mentions Monroe County, the Bat Creek Stone, which I'm sure you guys have heard of the Bat Creek Stone. But in Sneedville, on Newman's Ridge, about 10 miles west of here, live the remnants of an ethnically anomalous group known as the Melungians. Have you guys heard of the Melungians before? Yeah. So we call them, in our area, we call them, it's known as the Melungians, right? And the Melungians are have some physical markers that people in our area have, okay? One of the physical markers is that the Melungeons have like a, a knot, a, a calcium protrusion on the back the base of their skulls. And the Melungeons also are more dark-eyed, dark-shared, and then they have what they call an eyefold. So in your corners of your eyes, this skin at the top of your eye kind of folds over, to the inside of it, and it's very common in people in the Appalachian region. Okay, so mark I, like every marker for a Melungeon I've got, huh. and as does my father, and as did his grandmother, and as did his great grandmother, all of which have a little bit of, of, of Native American in them. So there may be, and like I distinctly remember, like in our like a local history. Uh, class in, in high school, like there was a whole section that we did studying Melungeons um, and the like the origin of the Melungeons, like of the people, like they don't really have a specific point in history that you can originate them at. Like you can't pinpoint them anywhere, but there are like a, a, there is a definitive physical traits and physical markers that people have that are considered to be Melungeon. Wow. I wow. myself being one of those. So, and I don't know how you guys will agree with this, what this book says, but it, it says, although they preserve many unusual customs and contacts between them, their predominantly Anglo-Saxon neighbors are still restrained. Most of the old prejudices and horror legends about the Melungeons, that they are devil worshippers, drink blood, and concoct super potent moonshine have been forgotten. So I guess that this paragraph is saying that maybe people don't have those same prejudices anymore. Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe you can tell me. All right. So for like most part, like if you were to walk in like an area of, of, of our of central Appalachia right now where we live and mention something about the Melungeons, most people would be like, oh, yeah, I know that. They have knots in the back of their heads and they're dark, a little darker eyed and they act folds and stuff. But as far as the prejudices against the Melungeons, it's not something that happens in the region at all um, that, I, that I know of, right? So Justin there, his, his fair Anglo-Saxon skin redhead self that he is, probably has no Melungeon markers, right, Justin? 
no. but I do because again, there's well, some some, some loose Native American ties in my lineage, and I just have the traits of Justin. You you may remember this better than I. Was it a local history class we did that we studied quite a bit about Melungeons? You read that? Nice we actually did a. I think we actually looked into it quite a bit on a former guest of ours. That was our history teacher, huh. uh, Brett Deal. We we dove in a little bit to Melungeon, and I, I don't remember the exact context that we were studying it. It may have just been a. a sidebar kind of thing that we were just looking into uh, people of Appalachia or something along those lines, but kind of, I agree with Lance there, you know, as far as, you know, any kind of prejudice toward or some of the things that you were saying there, I'd never even heard of Well, of, I, as far as I think I want to wait till Lance gets back. Cause he just stepped away for a moment. Cause what I'm about to read, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it and repeat for him, but yeah, I think there is. there was a time when the Melungeons were thought of as this other, maybe, you know, at least to the first early settlers, maybe they thought of them as, you know, sort of strange, or maybe even they played off of a lot of the thoughts at the time that, you know, the America was this devilish land, and they come across these people that resemble Europeans when all the other people look more like what we're familiar with Native Americans looking like, and they're like, oh, wow, these people must be here from the devil. Like, how else could they have gotten here, right? So maybe those prejudices has are better forgotten but what the author says here and i'm glad you you jumped back in lance because i'm about to read again it says still very much an in fact in effect however is the mystery that shrouds their origins there are theories that they descended from ancient phoenicians who we've talked a bunch about today there's also the theory that they are one of the lost tribes of israel or they are progeny of the Welsh chief Maddock, who pro- partly supposedly explored the Mississippi Valley. They could be sprung from long-sought refugees of Sir Walter Raleigh's lost colony at Jamestown, which disappeared around 1560 from Roanoke Island. Or they could be uh, Portuguese colonists or sailors who immigrated before the Revolutionary War, maybe even before that, you know, before Columbus. But uh, it says here, Melungeons themselves favor the Portuguese theory, but recently Dr. Cyrus H. Gordon, Mediterranean antiquities scholar with unorthodox ideas, has given impetus to the Phoenician idea with his studies of alleged Phoenician inscriptions on various stones found in North and South America. One of the most intriguing of the many folk tales about the Melungeons is the tradition that they once had mysterious sources of gold. They originally brought, they originally bought and paid for their farms with gold, according to the story, although this would suggest that they had arrived in the area at some time after the land was pioneered and parceled. Supposedly, their talents with gold continued until the mid-19th century when they were making gold and silver coins. Some of these apparently were counterfeit U.S. eagles and double eagles, but the legend claims they were so fine and contained so much more gold than government issue than their coins that their coins were much in demand and made a good deal of money for local merchants and bankers who received them in commercial exchange. They cherish their privacy, do not welcome intruders, and they strongly suggest 
anyone considering approach to get some background information before making any firm plans. So he basically warns, like, don't just go snooping around and talking to these Melungeons because they might get you. And I don't that's doubt right, it. Baby. That's right. Now, <laughs> you guys might want to keep this tight lip, but what what do you think about those gold rumors? you think that the Melungeons could have brought over some kind of alchemy secrets from uh, wherever they came from? Or maybe they had some kind of secret mine or something? So, Mark, here's what you don't know. I've been holding this secret now for 31, 35 years. <laughs> I actually have no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would make for a very interesting podcast, and I'm sure Ryan would be very upset that yeah. you <laughs> disclosed that while he wasn't here. But, yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, dang it, I missed it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, man. Well, no, man, I think there's definitely, again, just like Lance said earlier, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, this has to come from somewhere. And they are a people, even, you know, as we were looking into it, like like Lance stated earlier, you know, we kind of done a little deep dive into the Melungeons when we were in high school, but they were still a, a people shrouded in mystery then. I remember that being the biggest thing that I took from all of it was it being like, you know, where do these people come from? Like where, what is their origin? What's their background? So, I mean, I, I can obviously definitely see, you know, white settlers coming over here and seeing a darker colored people and thinking, or especially with, you know, whatever gods they may have worshipped or whatever alchemy they may have used or, you know, the sorcery of what it would have been looked at. That you know, good, good moonshine we were making. Yeah, that's probably how we still make really good moonshine. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm sure that, you have these Christian white folk coming over here and they see all these different things and they think, Oh my gosh, this is of the devil. Right. And maybe it was, you know, maybe it was unintentionally by the people <laughs> that were, were doing it, but it, it's weird, man. You have these people that we just don't. And I like the Phoenician part. I mean, we know that we just, that's what we talked about earlier. We saw the inscriptions of Phoenician. I mean, it's, extremely possible mm. i think yeah now i'm gonna i'm gonna read two more and then i think we, we ought to wrap up and i'll let you guys go because you both have families and you're busy people so i'll leave you to it and this has been i mean we really crushed it on this episode i think we made a lot of made a lot of interesting concepts and ideas come to light hopefully for the first time for people but I'm going to turn our, our attention over to Georgia. I'm going to maybe focus on North Georgia because I know that's kind of closer to where you guys are at. Have you guys ever heard of Fort Mountain? Yeah, that's actually what I was what I alluded to a little bit earlier with the legends and the folklore of the Moon-Eyed people. Okay. And Fort Mountain. That's okay. Yeah, and that's what they're about to get into. Is so I won't get too much into that. Now, what about? The, well, yeah, I mean, we can get into it if you want. It's super interesting stuff. Well, let me read what they have here. Then an easy step-like path leads to the giant wall running 885 feet along the mountainside. The structure ranges from two to seven feet high, with an abundance of loose rock alongside that suggests it could have been higher once. Dotting the ground by its side at fairly regular intervals are 29 pits about large enough to hold a squatting man theories as to its purpose range from a honeymoon 
haven for Cherokee Indians to usual game trap and fortification handles that tend to be assigned to rock structures puzzling to authorities. Other ideas are that the wall may have been built by Hernando de Soto on his journey through Georgia in the fall of 1541. However, he was only in the area for a few weeks, and it's obvious such a structure would have taken years to build. Another suggestion is that Prince Maddock, a Welsh explorer whom officially, whom official history refuses to acknowledge, may have erected it. He is believed by some to have brought 200 Welshmen across the Atlantic. And then it goes on to say that no weapons or any skeletal remains have been found to indicate that it's some sort of uh, fortification. And this brings to mind the old Cherokee legends that the wall was built by a race of white people who worshiped the sun. Is that touch on the Moonies or is there more to the Fort Mount mountain lore that this guy's leaving out? Yeah, well, well, we did an episode on the Moon-Eyed people yeah. and the whole Fort Mountain thing. You guys, you know, any of the listeners, go back and check that out. I don't remember exactly what episode, but it's titled The Moon-Eyed People, so it's not hard to find. But the folklore behind that area and behind Fort Mountain was that the Cherokee moved into the area and there was this race of extremely pale skin, not just regularly pale like like me, like this ginger kid sitting here, but like a really fair, pale-skinned people that had large, light color, blue eyes, sometimes kind of grayish, large heads, but they were smaller in stature, and they couldn't be in the sun. They would only come out after dark. They would do all their operations after dark, and their their civilizations or their where they resided was underground. They, they resided in subterranean places. So it was one of those, obviously it was one of those conflicts, you know, a, a territorial conflict going on there. The Cherokee were coming in, trying to settle, have hunting grounds, all this different stuff. The moon eyed people were already there. So they would start battling, you know, trying to force one or the other out. And, just south of Fort Mountain, if I'm not mistaken, they there was a, a big battle that happened, and then the wall at Fort Mountain, once the Cherokee pushed the Moon-Eyed people north of Fort Mountain up into the Smoky Mountain area of western North Carolina and east Tennessee, they built this wall to keep the Moon-Eyed people from coming back to that area. Now, some accounts say that there was a great battle that took place right there at Fort Mountain, that it was some kind of fortification. But like you said, and the author said there, there's really been no evidence found of that. So it makes more sense that the battles took place in different areas. They drove these people, or at least thought they drove these people completely out of that area and north up into the Smokies where we still have tales of little people today in the Smoky Mountain areas. And then they build this wall afterwards to keep, you know, this gap in the mountains. They build the wall there to keep these people from coming back into that area. Now, one of the most interesting things for me is who are these people? Because when you read the description, 
they sound a whole lot like what somebody would describe or how somebody would describe a gray alien. They sound extremely similar or, you know, the features may be like a tall white or a Nordic, only they were smaller. Or could it just be in some of these Welsh people, these early Welsh people that we know probably were smaller in stature. They didn't have the nutrients and the stuff that, that we have today. So they were smaller. I'm sure they were extremely fair skin. So if these natives are seeing these people for the first time and they just look weird to them, then that's, that may be how they describe them. And maybe they did have to stay out of the sun. You know, it was a, a time before banana boat, sunscreen you know all this different stuff so maybe they did operate in georgia where the sun beats down on you insane maybe they did only kind of operate in the morning hours and and the evening hours and you know take these breaks residing somewhere else maybe underground who knows so i it's a really interesting and again it's it's kind of like the melungeons you know who were these moon-eyed people we know that the natives had even carved out a couple totems, a couple statuesque type of things out of stone that people have found. And, and they claim that these are renditions of the moon-eyed people. So, again, it's one of those, it's just one of those mysteries. Like, who yeah. are these people that the Cherokee are talking about? Because they've talked about it. They have the legends. They have the lore. They have all the stories. Right. Who were they? Right, right. Yeah, and I think there was something similar at the Etowah Mounds where there were like these not little people, but different figures made out of copper that came out of the ground. So, yeah, weird stuff. And the other thing I found in this book about Georgia says ball ground in north of Atlanta, 18 miles north of Atlanta on SR5. Anyone who is interested in having his very own fairy cross should stop and see Rock Man. There are natural mineral formations that have for a long time been regarded as a supreme good luck talisman in the southeast. Robertson will hand you a shovel and point you towards his rock yard where you pay money and he (laughs) take your chance. So I guess there's some sort of, what is it? tourist attraction a roadside tourist attraction there but yeah there's some weird rock formations up looks like that's little bit south east of fort mountain but i don't know man i i gotta send you guys these pdfs because i think you'll take it and run with it and probably find some more valuable information in there more than just what we're able to cover today i'm sure you heard some of what we talked about already but i was glad to have you guys on to you know go back into all this stuff and especially now that i'm going to be living directly on the appalachian mountains it's yeah it's good timing to have you guys on the show yeah man absolutely well you know we considered you part of our appalachian hill folk tribe beforehand but now that you're technically definitely going to be in appalachia I mean, you're like a card-carrying member for sure now, so it's even better. Wow, wow. Don't but get, yeah, it, 
Don't get me going <laughs> too strong. I might get a big head now, but I'll tell you what. <laughs> If things go good, I'll be uh, on the road soon, so we'll definitely have to make some plans to go and visit some of these sites, and maybe you guys will one day come up here and check out the Stone Chambers. But yeah, tell the audience a little bit about what you guys have coming up next. I know you guys are probably winding down, going to put out a, a little bit less content as the holidays come through and whatnot. You're all husbands first, and I think that's really respectable. But any big plans, any ideas for what's to come next on Appalachian Intelligence? Uh, yeah, man. Actually, we head out in the morning. We're recording this on Thursday evening. So Friday morning, we'll be heading out to a super podcast conference in Ada, Ohio, called 40 and Airwaves. It's us, Kill the Mockingbirds, Uncomfortable Podcast, The Bump Podcast, Hollow Sky Podcast, and Cryptids of the Corn Podcast. We all kind of came together and we're doing a conference in Ada. So that's going to be tomorrow, Friday through Sunday. So that's going to be a whole lot of fun, you know, just being able to interact with a lot of people that operate in the same realm that we've, you know, we've spoken to and, and made really good friends with throughout the time that we've been podcasting and to be able to hang out, you know, with the audience, with a lot of the listeners, a lot of these people that have, you know, really helped us get to the point that we are today and, and continue to support us by coming and hanging out with us, you know, over the weekend and, we're going to be doing live shows there, podcast panels, you know, a lot of just informal meet and greet kind of stuff. We're leaving Sunday morning with a pancake breakfast for everybody. So it's just going to be a good time getting to hang out and, and really become more close to the community that I feel like we've entered into. And, but we've also been building, you know, throughout this time, you know, making these connections and networking all the way around. It's going to be a really good time with that. And yeah, as you stated, we're going to be a little less consistent over the next few months. You know, we've all, the three of us, we've had some changes going on in our own personal lives. And, you know, at the end of the day, this podcast, you know, we love it. We started doing it for fun and we continue to do it because it's fun. You know, we're, we don't have a goal of, hey, we're all going to be doing this full time in the next few months. If that happens one day, that would be wonderful. It'd be great. But for right now, there's you kind of got to take priority when it comes to family endeavors and, and things going on within the family. So we are going to be a little less consistent. We're still going to be creating content. We're still going to be you know, getting the episodes out and, and doing what we've been doing. It may just not be on that every Monday you know, you, you can expect this to drop at midnight on, on Monday every single week. You might get one on Monday. You might get one Friday the next week. You might get one Wednesday the week after. I mean, it's just when episodes drop, they'll drop. But it's just because we have a ton going on. And, again, we've said it from the get-go, we're family men first. And I, I think the, the genuineness of – how we live our lives is also a big reason that we have the community that we have. I mean, we really have a extremely loyal audience that, you know, even putting that out, all we got back was love, you know, not one single person was like, Oh man, really guys, you, you can't do everybody was like, look, we'll be here when y'all are here. So, right. I mean, 
for that, we're extremely thankful and grateful, you know, for the people that continue to, to be patient with us and to deal with us. We can't thank them enough. I mean, it's crazy that three knuckleheads like us have the amount of love and support that we have from the people out there. Somehow we do. I don't know. I can think of a few reasons and uh, I'm one of them. So I won't scratch your back too much because you've already done enough for me and I hope I've done some things for you guys. And yeah, I'm going to be listening as you guys uh, do release episodes and Hey, Quality over quantity. I think you guys ought to take a little time for yourselves and your family because that is what's most important at the end of the day. And this is the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. So <laughs> be blessed that your families uh, don't think you're crazy yet. Or maybe they do. At least at least the ones closest to us typically, you know, they typically do, but look past it. And you know, I think that's a big reason why we podcast, right? So we have a place to talk about all this stuff. Because <laughs> otherwise we You're would absolutely be right. the Looney Tunes of the family overboard. So yeah, that's certainly what this is for me. But I've said enough. Lance, any final thoughts before we let Justin just take the limelight as he's so good at doing? And as listening, he's been doing it for 20 years. I just continue to let him do it, Mark. It's no big deal with me. I've got no problem, absolutely no problem sitting in the old passenger seat. Now, I'll tell him how to drive, but i got no problem sitting in the old passenger seat. <laughs> All right, right on. Well, you guys make a good team, and we can't forget about Ryan. Shout out to him, whatever happened. I don't know. I can't tell, but that's fine. He, he said that his computer just crashed. He said it just went completely down. It was charged up, on, and just done so thoughts i don't know thoughts and prayers to his hard drive hopefully he gets that figured out and all right dudes great show thanks so much and thanks for tuning in folks be sure to check the links and follow up and subscribe to appalachian intelligence and until next time immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is our episode with Justin, Lance, and Ryan. Of course, if you tune in on the supporters-only side of things, you're going to get an extra half hour of episode this time around. I am in the middle of moving, so there might be another uh, pause as I get the internet set up in my new studio. But this is the last podcast I will be recording from the uh, basement headquarters here, so... Look forward to great new things from the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast on the way. And if you want to be a part of this amazing journey, please sign up on Patreon or Substack right now. Become one of the first 250 supporters. Help us reach that goal of 250 supporters. And we will have some exciting surprises in store once we reach that goal. But until then, folks please do sign up on the Patreon or the Substack to hear more from me, Mystic Mark, and our guests, Appalachian Intelligence. Of course, you can follow them wherever you listen to podcasts. And a big thank you to everybody who sent me a one-time donation for my birthday. It's not too late to do that. Please do so. It really helps out the show, and it really helps me in this uh, current move. So thank you for tuning in, and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now.
You know? Mark is doing a great job, even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts sometimes. <laughs> he's great. No, he's done a great job. He's done a great job. Good job, Mark. You can call uh, me Mark Palmer. Mark Palmer's cool. Mark Palmer's... It's a beautiful day to be alive. Motherfuckers. It's a beautiful day. Beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to be alive. That's all I gotta say. I don't think it's about money. I think they have so much. It's just about... It's a spiritual war, dude. It's so much farther. There's more power with spring flowers than pseudo-intellectuals filled by hate with the face sour. When it comes to the hour of reckoning, recollect, reconnect with days happening. Yeah, are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the grain or barely passing? Caught in the asinine like the afterlife. Obsessed with darkness after you master light. Cause it's faster than a blink. When it's a bastard, latch to the clank, clang. The money don't mean a damn thing. Think happiness ain't coming from the bank, dang. I'm out here daydreaming. The spirit's the egg, the self is the semen. Uh, and that's cause life is the child. And it takes a village to give it the illest style. So, if your family think you crazy, mm, and you ain't got a village, know you always got a place here. I'm calm, kick it, we chillin'. Exactly, dude. You get it, bro. You're so smart, everybody. You're so smart. Feel like I'm waking up for the first time. Crusty's on my third eye, but I'm back to the grind. Pop the blinds open, let the sun shine. Feel it on my skin like it's been sometimes. Sometimes depression got me flaking like Sisyphus. Others got me messing with mania like Icarus. And meditation helps with the sickness. Some say it's human condition, but it just isn't. There's more power in spring flowers. The circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured. Blurred lines between reality and fiction. And some politicians get dirtier than dishes. But for a minute, just forget about the government. I'm looking at you and I and where the love went. Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics. Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't. And your family think you crazy. Yeah. And you ain't got a village. I know you always got a place here. Come kick it, we chillin', yeah. I'm a conspiracy boy. That's all I gotta say. Mark Palmer's cool. How are you, brother? I'm great, man. How are you?